0: Sin does not keep Jesus from extending uh, grace to sinners, but self-righteousness may keep sinners from receiving it. Let us pray. Father, as we dive into this passage this morning, your word, your authoritative word, I pray that you would give us all that we need to understand what your word declares to us, that Holy Spirit, you might apply it to our hearts Holy Spirit, make me faithful in preaching, make us faithful in hearing, remind us of the glorious work of the Lord Jesus Christ, that indeed He is a friend of sinners. Cause us to cast our eyes even from the cares of this day to that day that will come when the perfected church will sit down with the Lord Jesus at that marriage supper, that banquet and celebrate. May this even be a celebration of that future reality that's very real to us today as we celebrate the fact that Jesus has extended grace to us. Father, bless this your word, we pray, even as it is read. Amen. Please turn to Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, and I quote, Besides being complicated, reality, in my experience, is usually odd. It is not neat, not obvious, not what you expected. End quote. We may look at our day. We may look at our culture. We may look at the things around us and have that, that same analysis of reality, not what I expected it's not obvious what is going on it is odd it seems maybe we use this term it seems like everything is turned upside down but then C.S. Lewis goes on to say and I quote that is one of the reasons I believe in Christianity it is a religion you could not have guessed if it offered us just the kind of universe We'd always expected, I should feel, we were making it up. But in fact, it is not the sort of thing anyone would have made up. It, is, it has just that odd twist about it that real things have." End quote." The realities that are depicted in the passage of Scripture that we have read this morning I believe, live up to Lewis's comments about reality sometimes being very unexpected, odd, seeming like everything is turned upside down. Jesus called a despised tax collector to be his disciples. Jesus sat down and ate with the likes like that tax collector, other tax collectors, a bunch of sinners, whoever they were, that had gathered at this banquet. How odd that the the, the self righteous of his day, those who view their righteousness based on some outward conformity to some extra biblical, rabbinical tradition, were not at the banquet. Especially in light of the fact that they thought of anyone who should have been invited to that banquet, it should have been us, the righteous. But the surprise of the text is that they were not there. They were left outside. Those at the banquet table were the tax collectors, the outcasts, those who were viewed by the scribes and the Pharisees as being the lawbreakers, those who had a low view of Moses and his law. The unexpected. Sin does not keep Jesus from extending grace to sinners. But self-righteousness may keep a sinner from receiving it. The unexpected realities of Christ's three actions. A despised man was called by Jesus. A group of scribes and Pharisees were offended by Jesus. And that same group of scribes and Pharisees were silenced by Jesus. Called by Jesus, offended by Jesus and silenced by Jesus look at verses 13 through 14 first Levi a despised tax collector was called by Jesus so you know the saying the enemy of my enemy is my friend and sometimes people who are enemies may because they have a common enemy actually have formed some alliance well the Jews hated the tax collectors And the non-Jews hated the tax collectors. And the non-Jews and the Jews could be called enemies, but they had a common enemy, the tax collectors. After healing the paralytic, as we considered last week in verses 1 through 12, Jesus withdrew to the seaside. Look at verse 13. Presumably near the place where he had previously, in verses 16 through 20 of chapter 1, called The four disciples, Simon, Andrew, James, and John. Throughout Mark, we find a pattern in Jesus. He demonstrates his saving power and he withdraws to solitude. Maybe a wilderness, maybe a mountain, in this case, the seashore. I have found over the years on the beach with few people, if any, is very peaceful, even with the sound of the waves crashing upon the shoreline. And here Jesus, on this occasion, had left a very crowded home in Capernaum, where he had forgiven a paralytic, was accused of being a blasphemer, (laughs) opposed by the scribes and Pharisees, and then he healed the man to show that indeed he had the authority to forgive sin. And he left that place, demonstrating his sovereign power, and he went to the seashore to take a stroll. But his stroll was short-lived. The crowds found him. It's interesting that Jesus did not turn them away and say, hey, I need a break. This, this is my day off. <laughs> That's what I would probably do. No, he began to teach. That's what he was called to do. And then in verse 14, after the lesson was concluded, Jesus resumed his walk and passed by Levi sitting at the tax booth. There was a major trade route that went through Capernaum that linked Syria in the north with Egypt in the south. Tariffs and taxes were collected at Capernaum on the merchandise that was transported up and down that trade route. You might think of Capernaum and you might think of Caesarea on the shore of the Mediterranean and Jericho by the Dead Sea, the other two places where taxes were collected, where there were tax booths, as this really big toll booth. You know what that is. Virginia, within the clunk coin in the toll booth. And so this tax booth was basically a toll booth that collected taxes for Rome. And I make that observation because surely the tax booth was not in the isolated area of the seashore. Likely Jesus had left the teaching of the crowd, was going back by the seashore, entered Capernaum, and as he was going presumably back to his home he saw Levi the tax collector doing his job at the tax booth well who who were the tax collectors Levi Levi was a low level tax collector Zacchaeus was a upper level tax collector he was called the chief publican as you may remember in scripture so basically Representative would be under someone like Zacchaeus, the, the chief publican or tax collector. And then the chief tax collector, someone like Zacchaeus, would be under another higher level tax collector that were called um, farmer generals. And these farmer generals were Roman citizens who basically paid large sums of money into the treasury of Rome for the privilege of collecting taxes and tariffs and whatnot in a province. And so you had Levi, the the guy at the counter, then you had Zacchaeus, and then you had the former general, and then you had Herod Antipas, the governor of that region of Palestine. It's a pyramid scheme. Just think of it like that, and you, sh- you should be pretty pretty clear on what the tax system was like <laughs> in the first century. The Jewish community treated these tax collectors who at, Ze- at uh, Levi's level were primarily Jew- Jews They treated them as traitors. They were aligned with Rome. Levi could charge whatever the market would bring. And he would charge over and above so he could skim money off the top. Zacchaeus would skim money off the top. The former general would skim You get the picture now, right? Everybody was getting a cut of this. They were extortionists. That's a nice way, well, that would be an accurate way to put it. Maybe the nice way is that they were tax officials. They were extortionists. But for the Jew looking at a man like Levi, who is a Jew and a low-level tax official, the Jews detested them. They treated them as outcasts to the Jewish community. A man like Levi was not able to serve as a judge, not able to serve as a witness in a a court. They were actually excommunicated from the synagogue. Does that give you a picture of how despised a man like Levi was? And the plot thickens a bit when we consider that one of the things that was taxed were fish. Fish that were caught in the Sea of Galilee by fishermen like Simon, Andrew, James, and John. The disciples that were called previously to follow Jesus. And I'm sure they're looking at Jesus calling Levi. And by the way, the four disciples probably... Had been extorted by Levi as they had to pay taxes on their fish to him. I'm sure these four disciples were, maybe for all we know, they were actually uh, quoting C.S. Lewis. Reality is odd. How can this be? Reality is unexpected we we would not have thought in a thousand years that jesus would call that scoundrel who has been extorting money from us all these years and jesus said follow me and he followed him besides being complicated reality in my experience is usually odd it's not neat it's not obvious it's not what you expected one who would be the poster boy for a vile sinner in the Jewish mindset and maybe even in the Roman mindset, whatever their view of sin was, would be a man like Levi. Mark gives little information about Levi. You would like Mark to preach for you because he's brief. He says he's the son of Alphaeus. He tells us he's a tax collector. And he doesn't really give much more. We know from John chapter 1, verse 35, that, that Philip and Nathaniel were called after Simon, Andrew, James, and John. So, that left Mark as being the seventh disciple. And we know from Luke, chapter 5, verse 28, really the, the, the purpose for Mark being brief is not to focus on Levi the person, but his response. And Mark's, Mark tells us that Jesus called him and simply he rose and followed him. Luke, in chapter 5, verse 28, helps us understand what that means. Luke says, and leaving everything. Levi rose and followed Jesus. It's interesting that when the four fishermen were called, they left their nets. J- James and John left, left their father, but left their nets in the business dad. But they could always go back to those businesses, and, and they did in ca- some cases. When Levi left, He completely broke with his old life and his old profession. He left everything. Mark emphasizes the radical nature of Levi's response. The worst of sinners to Jesus' call to follow him. In contrast, remember in Luke 18, the rich young ruler? Hey, what does it take to get in the kingdom of God? We need to obey. Rich young ruler, I obeyed. I have obeyed the Ten Commandments. I've obeyed them perfectly. And Jesus says, okay, rich young ruler, give away all your wealth to the poor and then come and follow me. Do do you remember what the rich young ruler did? He turned away sad and left. No radical, it was a radical response, but in the wrong direction. He couldn't part with his wealth. He said, I'm righteous. I only conform to the Ten Commandments. But his response showed he was unrighteous inwardly, the greater. His heart had not been changed. And therefore, his outward behavior was merely an empty piety principle we see in this text is that righteousness flows from the inside out remember that the rich young ruler that was not his case God's grace works to change the heart of a sinner to produce a new spiritual nature and that spiritual nature now is enabled to love God and to love one's neighbor one's motivations have changed Inward inward righteousness governs our outward conduct. And the rich young ruler shows there was no inward righteous heart because he could not truly love his neighbor. He could not outwardly conform to the greater commandment, mercy, justice, faithfulness. The surprise of this text is Jesus turning the world's expectations upside down. He touched a despised leper and healed him. He healed another outcast of society, a paralytic, and not only healed him physically but spiritually. He forgave him. And now he caused probably one of the most despised (laughs) people in all of Capernaum, Levi, to follow him. And we just simply have to be impressed with Levi's total and radical response. Here's the implication for us today. It's, it's an implication that, that 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 we need to hear. Some of us need to be reminded of it. Maybe today you need to hear it for the first time. Here's the implication: No one is too sinful. No one is too much of an outcast. No one is too despised by culture. For Jesus to not only befriend them, but extend his grace to them. And when Jesus extends his grace to sinners by the power of the Holy Spirit, that sinner is irresistibly drawn to Christ. What the sinner does in irresistibly responding to Jesus' call is what Levi did. He left it all to follow Jesus. That doesn't mean you leave your family, that doesn't mean you leave your job, but it means you leave all those little g-gods, all those other ways that you have sought satisfaction and fulfillment, and you follow Jesus exclusively. He not only befriends sinners, one is too sinful to be befriended by Jesus, but he also extends grace to them, irresistible grace. It is not the case in my judgment that anyone comes into the kingdom of God kicking and screaming. At best, that is false. What the Bible teaches is that when the Holy Spirit changes our hearts, everything changes. And we run to Jesus. We run into his arms willingly. When Jesus called us out of sin, likewise, we were irresistibly drawn. Levi's call represents true hope for sinners. Sin does not keep Jesus from extending grace to sinners, like Levi and like us. But self-righteousness may keep a sinner from receiving it. And maybe today, if you're here, and you've never received Jesus' grace, maybe it's because you are dealing with self-righteousness. I've got this, Jesus. Okay, Jesus, I'm conforming to what the Bible says. I'm in church. I'm I'm giving. I'm, 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 I'm tithing. Levi followed Jesus because Levi knew he was unrighteous. And on his best day, he couldn't do enough. even merit Jesus befriending him. And so, would you consider today as your self-righteousness, is your believing in something else that is going to deal with your sin, or deal with your life, or deal with your problems, or give you satisfaction... Are you embracing those things, unable to receive the free, the free grace that is extended to you? Sin doesn't keep Jesus from you, but your self-righteousness may keep you from receiving that grace. And for a guy like me, who I'm convinced I'm a believer. I love Jesus, he loves me. I can go about my day not relying on Jesus. I can just as easily say, Jesus, I've got this. Same thing applies to believers too. Our sin doesn't keep Jesus from rescinding his grace to us, but our self righteousness may keep us from daily just living in the reality of it because we say hey jesus we've got this i'm able to you in my own strength we play the pharisee might be another way to put it secondly the the, the scribes and the pharisees offend, were offended by jesus eating with tax collectors and good verses 15 through 16. this is the second round of opposition that the scribes and Pharisees had with Jesus. The first round was with the paralytic. Now it's with Levi and these, these sinners at, at, at this banquet. And, and, you know, one of the most natural things that, that, that we do is, as a church, as a people, is that when there's a big occasion, when, when, when there is some big event that has happened, something worthy to celebrate, what do we do? We throw a party. We have a meal. Uh, we celebrate birthdays, anniversaries, holidays. You name it, we are great and should be great at, at gathering around a table to celebrate something really good that, that has happened. And Levi, out of joy, threw a banquet at his home for Jesus, his fellow and former tax collectors, this group of people called sinners. Look at verse, or Luke chapter 5 verse 29, and Levi made him a great feast in his house and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table. This helps us understand Mark 2.15 where Mark is a little briefer in his identification of whose house it was and, and who was there. But our text specifies that the guests that were gathered in Levi's home, sitting around that table, verse 15, were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. They were reclining. Very common in that day is to have a U-shaped table. And people would come and recline on couches. And the the would be at the the top of the U, at the central place. And then the most honored would be on either side. And then you would go down to, I guess, honor as you went around the the, the table And, and and reclining at the table in at a banquet like this meant that that you were accepted in in this home the meal was about showing hospitality building relationships enjoying fellowship in fact it was called table fellowship well who was reclining at this table with Jesus it's striking Mark clearly states tax collectors and sinners Again, looking in at that banquet, you might say, boy, reality is complicated. In my experience, it's really odd to see Jesus eating with this crowd that is at best suspect. And we know about the tax collectors, they were despised. There's not only Levi there, but his fellow tax co- or former tax collectors were there. And then there's this group called sinners. And really to understand what is meant by sinners, we have to understand who the scribes and Pharisees were. The scribes were part of that Pharisaical party, but think of the scribes as the professional scholars, expert teachers, expositors of the law of God. And then think of the Pharisees in general as as those guys who would take what what the scribes were teaching and then they would apply it. In practice. So the Pharisees were more theologically bent, that the scribes were more word ministry, teaching, study, expositing the scripture bent. The scribes and Pharisees as a group were deeply devoted to the law, but you got to understand this. They were deeply devoted to the extensive expansion of the Mosaic Law by the rabbinical teachers that had added all kinds of regulations to the Mosaic Law to help one be more pious and then pass down those man-made extra-biblical regulations. You may have heard the term the tradition of the elders or the Pharisaical tradition. These were this is what the scribe and Pharisee was really focused on, these extra-biblical, man-made regulations. And when, when they saw Jesus sitting down with tax collectors and sinners, they understood sinners not as those who had violated one of the Ten Commandments, but they viewed them as those people who do not accept our Pharisaical tradition. They deny and they do not practice our purity laws. They reject these. Eventually, became some 900 and some additional laws in the rabbinical tradition for Jews to follow in order to keep the ten. Is one, one way to look at it. And and so that's so anyone who didn't buy in to the scribes and Pharisees interpretation. And their extra-biblical laws were called sinners. And guess who was numbered among the sinners? Jesus himself. Because he didn't buy into it. He didn't accept it. He didn't practice. Jesus is opposed time and time again because of it. Matthew 23 really brings this to light. It it shows the scribes and Pharisees being meticulous about all sorts of laws, measuring out spices to the nth degree in order to tithe them, all kinds of purity laws. In Matthew 23, the Lord Jesus uses their understanding of these laws and their meticulous practice of these extra-biblical laws as the ground for him to issue seven woes of judgment, upon the scribes and the Pharisees. And in verse 23 of Matthew 23, the indictment Jesus gives is this. You spend all this time measuring out spices to tithe and you neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness their strict observance to these extra-biblical man-made laws actually hindered them from obeying God's law. Everyone at that banquet except Jesus was a sinner in that in some shape, fashion, or form they had transgressed God's law, but the scribes and Pharisees were sinners too, and they just simply couldn't see it. They were blinded to that reality. And the twist is this, again, that Not even Jesus met their unbiblical standard. The reference to many who followed him in verse 15 points to the fact that many tax collectors and those who were viewed as sinners by the scribes and Pharisees, these outcasts, had begun to follow Jesus. And some of them were reclining at the table with him. Jesus was gathering sinners that were drawn to him and I suspect sinners were just as surprised for Jesus to eat with them as the scribes were that Jesus was eating with them. In verse 16, the scribes and the Pharisees saw Jesus eating with sinners. And and likely, this likely after the banquet, as the guests were leaving, as the disciples were leaving, the, the scribes and Pharisees went up to the disciples and they said, hey, what does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And behind this question is really a critical matter to the Scribes and Pharisees, and an accusation. I mean, they viewed Jesus as a fellow teacher. And as such, he was to maintain this distinction between the righteous and the sinner, which is a key component to their piety. But Jesus failed to do this. As a teacher of the law, he should have realized how inappropriate it was for him to sit down with a bunch of tax collectors and sinners and become ceremonially impure. This was disgraceful, unthinkable. I'm sure the scribes and Pharisees were quoting Lewis.
1: Man, is our reality
0: turned upside down with what Jesus is doing here. But Jesus was a friend of sinners. But he was not a friend of the scribes and the Pharisees. They rejected him. Can, Can we be offended when Jesus extends grace to sinners? As we look at that banquet, are, are we thinking like Lewis, I tell you what, when, when abortionists and homosexuals and transgender people and murderers and all the like are engaged by another Christian with the gospel, what is that Christian doing? Are we offended when, when sinners actually show up at church? <laughs> are we offended when Jesus extends his grace to sinners? And I think sometimes we are. Maybe even we say, that person, there's no there's no way in the world that person's ever gonna be in the kingdom of heaven. You think about where our culture is today, you think about how depraved our culture is today. Isn't it easy to think there is no way Jesus would sit down with that person? And here's what we need to remember. Jesus ministered to a woman who had committed adultery maybe seven times, been married seven times, in John chapter 4. Never condemned her for her sin, offered her life. He extended grace to her. No one could believe it. A woman, a Samaritan, and an adulterer. Sin does not keep Jesus from extending grace to sinners, but our self-righteousness may keep us from celebrating a sinner receiving his grace. And that, my friend, is something from which we need to repent. And then thoroughly and hopefully quickly, Jesus was silenced, or Jesus silenced the accusation of the Pharisees. You know, they, Jesus gives this very well-known proverb that the scribes and Pharisees likely agreed with, the healthy have no need of a physician, but rather the sick. And then Jesus in verse 17 says, I, I came not to call the righteous, but, but, but sinners. He really, really forced the scribes and Pharisees to ask the question, which one am I? Am I a, a righteous, self-righteous person that has no need of mercy, or am I a sinner that, that is in need of, of mercy? In fact, in Matthew's gospel, we, we read Jesus in this very same account, Matthew recording Jesus saying, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And this is a quote from Hosea 6.6 from Matthew. Again, just observing that, that the sacrifice represents that outward conformity to a religious ritual and the scribes were focused on that but yet inwardly they were not just their hearts had not been changed their righteousness was not from the inside out they were simply focused on the outside only and what Matthew says from Hosea what Jesus is saying is that mercy is more important matter in God's eyes the obvious lack of mercy the scribes and Pharisees demonstrated showed that their righteousness was empty; it was fake. The surprise of the text is who was not at the banquet, and it was the scribes and Pharisees. Strict observance of these extra biblical rules. The text should move us to ask: Am I like them? You know, sin does not keep Jesus from extending grace to me, but does my self-righteousness keep me from receiving his mercy and extending that mercy to others? As Luther famously said, I do not only need to repent of my sin, but also of my righteousness, my self-righteousness. I want us to see hope in this passage. The uh, the passage of Scripture that, that Bruce read from Isaiah 55 is an invitation to come, to come to the banquet, to come and sit down with Jesus. Isaiah says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat, come by." Wine and milk, without money and without price. The only requirement to come to Jesus is thirsting for him. You don't have to have money, you don't have to in other words, come as you are. Come thirsty. You don't have to get cleaned up. You don't have to deal with your sin. You come to Jesus as you are, and you receive His plenteous grace. And I believe Levi so beautifully shows that. Levi just left and followed Jesus. He he didn't even try to make things right. He just followed Jesus. He didn't try to clean himself up. He followed Jesus. He left everything, and that's what Isaiah is calling us. Isaiah is saying in verse 5 that there's going to be a nation that is going to be gathered. Those who are invited to come because they thirst to come as they are in all of their sin... And that nation is the church. The believers that are going to be raised up to come to Jesus and to experience that that messianic work. It's really amazing to me. As those scribes and Pharisees looked into Levi's house and they saw Jesus sitting with those tax collectors and sinners, what they were seeing was Messiah sitting with those sinners. And what that banquet anticipates is Jesus sitting down with his church perfected in heaven at the marriage banquet of the Lamb and celebrating his grace, his mercy that they had received. This passage, as unexpected as it is, is of great encouragement to the believer. And may we be encouraged that sin does not keep Jesus from extending grace to sinners. If you've received Jesus' grace, you will be at that great banquet that Revelation 19 talks about. But let us be warm that self-righteousness, our sense of, I've got this Jesus, may keep us from receiving it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. For your grace and mercy, we thank you, Lord, that you call sinners to come to you. We thank you, Father, that by the work of the Holy Spirit, there is an irresistible call. We thank you, Father, that even our sin does not keep you from us. And Father, may you so work that in whatever situation we may be, that our self-righteousness or our trust in something else, will not keep us from receiving your grace freely offered. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name, a friend of sinners. Amen.